Hey everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Evangelis Simudis, a seasoned venture investor with 20 years of experience, advisor to global corporations, and a recognized thought leader in big data, digital platforms, and corporate innovation. Prior to his investing work, Evangelos has spent 20 years in high-tech industries in executive roles spanning operations, marketing, sales, and engineering. He's also the author of books, The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future, and Transportation Transformation. Today, we're talking with Evangelos about the next generation mobility. But before we get into that, Evangelos, welcome to the show. Oleg, thank you very much for uh, having me. I'm delighted to be here. All right, real excited to have you here. Uh, let's get started by learning a little bit more about you. Uh, tell us about yourself and how you got started in this business. I studied engineering and my, my PhD is in computer science and, and AI. I've been in uh, artificial intelligence since uh, roughly 1982, 1983. I, um, like many, many folks, started uh, in an engineering career. Uh, moved to startups and did a couple of those. And after selling my uh, second startup, I uh, moved to the to the venture side. I was invited to, to join the partnership of uh, Apex Partners, which was a large private equity firm. Then uh, joined the partnership of Trident Capital, uh, more of a typical Silicon Valley IT uh, in- venture investor. And five years ago, with one of my partners from uh, Trident, we started our current firm, Synapse, uh, Synapse Partners. So uh, over a course of, uh, as you said in your introduction, about 40 years, um, I've gone from engineering to entrepreneurship to uh, more recently helping entrepreneurs with investments and, and coaching and, and all of that, kind of everything that's needed for, for building a successful startup. And I've been doing this for about 20 years now uh, as, a, as an investor. And more recently, I, because of the opportunities uh, that we see in, um, particularly in the application of data to mobility through through AI, uh, spending a lot more time again in that uh, in that area. So you can think of it as coming full circle from over a course of forty years from starting with AI and now again uh, getting my hands real dirty with AI, both investing and advising. Well, you sound like the perfect kind of guest for the podcast, you know, wealth of experience and and duration of experience. I want to learn a little bit more about your firm. Uh, Tell us about Synapse Partners. We started Synapse about five years ago, and um, we we felt that as AI started making a comeback, particularly with data-driven AI, there would be a big opportunity for in the area of enterprise software which is an area that my partner and I knew very well. And uh, so we, we created this specialized uh, firm to invest exclusively in, uh, in AI, in, in applications in that uh, involve uh, the core they have AI. And uh, we felt that in order to uh, better understand what to invest in and uh, how to help corporations with AI, uh, we better start forming close relationships with them. So uh, 
in the intervening five years now, we have uh, we have been working with ten different corporations from a couple of different industries, and the the interactions that we have with them allow us to both better understand their problems and in this way uh, identify startups that can successfully address uh, such problems. But also in the process of doing that, we have uh, been advising the corporations themselves both on how to best take advantage of uh, startups, but also how to um, refine and and modify their strategies uh, in order to take uh, uh, best advantage of AI in general. Okay, and next, tell us about the books. What, what do you write about and why? So I've always been, been writing um, and, and teaching, actually, uh, over, the, over the years. But um, when, when new mobility, particularly through the, all the noise that had been created around autonomous vehicles, uh, started coming to the surface, I saw the, the role that data and AI can play. In, in new mobility. So uh, I started writing a series of blogs. Uh, blogs became speeches. The speeches turned out into my first book, what was called The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. And um, as I continued to write, I, I saw kind of like the, the, the bigger issues that, uh, that are involved and, and have to be involved in, if we are to make new mobility a reality. And, and that has led to, to, my second, uh, to my second book, as you said, Transport, Transportation Transformation. Uh, more recently, I've been, I've been writing about telework and the, the role of AI and automation in employment, uh, because I think that this will impact uh, quite significantly uh, even transportation. And, and we even saw it during the pandemic. Uh, but um, I, I believe, again, uh, the because of the role that, that data and AI can play, I, I feel that I need to, to provide some sort of an education, some sort of an analysis, uh, which uh, a book format allows me to do. Uh, sometimes uh, blogs do not. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Next, let's talk about the industry of mobility. And I want to talk about the future. And in order to get there, uh, I think it makes sense to ask about the present. So what is the current state of next generation mobility? Well, again, so I, when I look at uh, next generation mobility, uh, I look at uh, essentially three constituencies, right? I look at uh, automakers and their and their ecosystem. I look at mobility services, uh, so uh, companies that provide ride hailing, uh, goods delivery, micro mobility, and then I look at uh, cities. And uh, because they provide the infrastructure as well as uh, some some transportation, so what we've seen with uh, actually pre-pandemic is that certain certain segments of the population, particularly urban uh, population, have started embra- had started embracing uh, mobility services. Uh, Quite, uh, quite aggressively. Because again, if, if we were to net it out, what consumers want from their transportation is they want to have safe, um, affordable, and convenient transportation. And uh, more recently, I think what we have been adding to, to these three uh, dimensions is the, the notion of 
equitable transportation. So, you know, again, what the pre-pandemic uh, experience has shown us that mobility services are uh, uh, provide convenience to a few segments of the population, but not to everybody. Uh, and the, the second aspect, the second, kind of like the fifth dimension, if you will, is uh, environmental friendliness, right? So we want transportation that will be non-polluting. So um, during, so during the pandemic, we've, so pre-pandemic, we, we've seen this, um, as an embracing of uh, multimodal uh, mobility services, and also some return back to public transportation, especially in cities like New York, like San Francisco, uh, D.C. I'm talking about here in the U.S. And then obviously outside the U.S., uh, public transportation is a lot uh, more embraced than, than here. Uh, post-pandemic, uh, we've seen a cratering of public transportation uh, as people sought uh, to, to use privately owned vehicles a lot more. Uh, Primarily for uh, health, uh, for health safety uh, reasons, and we've also seen the emergence from a mobility services perspective. We've seen the emergence of the uh, goods delivery services, whether it is for grocery delivery or or food delivery, both prepared and and other type of foods as well as, as packages. So we're waiting now to see. What is going to happen post-pandemic? Automakers have been doing quite well because uh, consumers have flocked to buy more vehicles. Uh, The the latest numbers uh, show that uh, 2021 will probably be one of the best years that automakers have had in terms of uh, private vehicle sales. We've also been doing mobility services that, that have goods delivery, have been doing quite well. And uh, we're waiting to see whether uh, the, uh, the, the, the ride-sharing, ride-hailing type of the share mobility services will, uh, will come back up uh, post-pandemic. So, so that uh, gives you kind of like a broad overview of, of what has been happening on the consumer front. Next, can you talk about uh, automotive OEMs? Uh, what are they and what might the future hold for them? OEMs pre-pandemic have been at a, at a crossroads, uh, and I write quite a bit about that in the book, and that they, um, they have been dealing with technology challenges, uh, how to embrace uh, electrification, for example, and um, other, uh, other forms of uh, environmentally friendly uh, powertrains. Uh, as well as whether autonomous vehicles, uh, whether, how to embrace autonomy and, and how much autonomy to introduce to their vehicles, and uh, also how to deal with uh, mobility services, uh, because they were, uh, they were seeing a significant impact, particularly in urban mobility, uh, coming from the, as, as the populations were embracing mobility services. I think... The, during the pandemic and now as we're exiting, the, as we're starting to finally think about a post-pandemic period, uh, automakers are, um, I think they're spending a lot more time in with electrification. Uh, you see, for example, the investments that uh, companies like GM and uh, uh, Volkswagen are making on, uh, the, on electrified vehicles and the various models that we'll be introducing. Uh, by and large, I see um, 
I won't call it yet an abandonment of mobility services, but certainly a reconsideration of the mobility services plans that they had. So if you look at companies like uh, like GM, uh, like Daimler uh, and, and uh, Renault that had, uh, even, even Volkswagen, uh, that had very aggressive programs to uh, introduce mobility services to certain cities around the world, those have been scaled back. So the and then with regards to autonomous vehicles, I think also those um, uh, projections that OEMs were making uh, have been moderated. Uh, so whereas before we were talking about uh, a lot of them introducing fully autonomous vehicles, kind of level four, level five uh, driving automation. Uh, right now, uh, whether it is in Asia or in Europe or in, even here in the U.S., uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, uh, plans around uh, level two, level three levels of driving automation, uh, which is similar to what Tesla has had for, for a while now. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like uh, these kind of technologies are being embraced. Uh, let's let's move on to the ecosystem and value chains. Uh, talk about mobility services. Talk about mobility services and their future prospects. Mobility services, as I said, the uh, they saw their their usage, especially those that had been focusing on uh, passenger transportation, whether it is uh, micro mobility, micro transit, uh, ride hailing, ride sharing. Uh, they saw their um, their business crater uh, because not, people were not moving right. So, uh, the, so right now, I think in, in some of them, like in the case of Uber, like in the case of um, uh, Lyft here in the U.S., they started moving to a more hybrid uh, model where they're not only providing uh, uh, passenger mobility, but they're also providing goods delivery. I mean, the, the success, for example, of Uber Eats has been well documented uh, during the pandemic. And um, so on the one hand, they're, they're talking about uh, how the ridership is going to come back up as, as more people are starting to go back to work, as, as the mobility within uh, urban areas is starting to increase. But a lot of them are also thinking how to, uh, to continue building on this hybrid model that they have uh, developed and expand their, uh, their services. By and large, uh, you know, companies like, again, like uh, Uber, like Lyft, that had very active autonomous vehicles development programs, uh, I think they have given those up because they, uh, now that uh, they are public companies, they need to think uh, a lot more uh, aggressively about short-term profitability and, and the autonomous vehicle programs were becoming significant money sinks uh, for uh, for them. So I think they will be looking uh, to uh, partner with uh, autonomous vehicle uh, uh, technology providers. In the case of Uber, you see them uh, coming closer to Aurora. I think we'll see uh, similar kind of partnerships. Uh, you see Lyft coming closer to Motional and, and Aptive. So I think we'll see more, more of those uh, partnerships uh, emerge uh, in the future. And um, 
I think in the case, you know, more broadly, you you'll see these companies focusing more regionally and, and developing and, and showing uh, their their uh, business models scale on a on a regional basis and seeing how they can uh, they can turn to uh, consistent profitability. Um, that's what I see, for, especially for the next couple of years for for these companies. Yeah, those are some really interesting predictions. Uh, could you keep talking about new mobility and, and discuss the value chain? I think it's important. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, we, we talked a little bit about new mobility, but uh, I think it's important to define it. So if I were to define new mobility, I would say it's the movement of, of people and goods uh, using um, vehicles that are electrified, uh, autonomous or automated and obviously connected and also the the combination of vehicles and services. So that means that um, we we need to have the right infrastructures, uh, both digital and physical infrastructure for this for these vis- uh, vehicles and services to operate in. Um, we need to have uh, the right uh, data flows, the right uh, software capabilities. So so that's. That's why I keep saying that in you know, new mobility is about vehicles, about services, about infrastructure. Uh, it's about obviously business models. We were talking about this a couple of minutes ago with regards to mobility services and, and, and automakers. And around this, all of these components, uh, there's data and AI, which become the, the glue that, that bring all this uh, uh, together. So, so that's what makes up uh, new mobility. Now, as, uh, as, you, as you correctly pointed out, when, when these ingredients come, start to come together, when these components start to come together, there, there are new value uh, chains that will, be, uh, that will be developed. Now, this... These value chains will consist of both companies from, uh, the, from, from the incumbent automotive and transportation systems, but where uh, we as investors uh, become extremely excited is because we see opportunities for startups to play a major role in these new value chains because uh, the, these value chains will... Uh, will include players from industries that traditionally have not been associated with uh, transportation and, and mobility and, and, and automakers, right? So industries such as entertainment. Uh, so we see, you know, as, as the vehicle becomes more autonomous, uh, we see the opportunity to have a, a variety of content, digital content in the cabin. Um, uh, hospitality industries. I mean, they, they would be very interested in, in offering certain services as part of mobility. Uh, utilities, obviously, again, if you have electrified vehicles the, or, or fuel cell-based uh, vehicles, uh, utilities become a very integral part in the same way that we had gas stations uh, in, uh, for, for internal combustion engines. Um, healthcare industries are, are extremely interested. So imagine, for example, you have a vehicle that uh, can sense the, the health condition of its passengers and, and if, or the, even the driver. And, and if, uh, uh, there, if it senses a, a, an emergency, it can automatically drive you to a, to a hospital or to some uh, facility that can provide uh, such services. 
So, so we're seeing a number of industries uh, becoming uh, very interested in, uh, in this new mobility. And, and that's what will create this, uh, these new value chains, as I, uh, as I mentioned. Yeah, it, that's actually fascinating. What you said about entertainment kind of my, my head went directly to like uh, in-flight entertainment, you know, planes with with movies and the whole industry there and the, and the connectivity and, and technology. It, it opens up so many opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. Just just before the pandemic, I was in India and it's very common there to to have buses that travel overnight equipped with with beds equipped with uh, certain uh, even today certain entertainment capabilities you know typically dvd related imagine all this being uh, offered to you dynamically very much like you have on the plane and where you have a much broader uh, array of of uh, options to to choose from and imagine the bus being autonomous uh, again. Over if you're if you're driving out on the highway where the operating design domain is called, it's it's much more controlled. We see autonomous vehicles becoming much easier to uh, incorporate and accept uh, than say in a city environment. Uh, that's why, again, one of the uh, areas where we see autonomy being uh, uh, present, uh, being adopted uh, quickly is long haul tracking, right? Where again, you're out on the freeway, you don't. Everything is much better controlled than, uh, say, in a in an urban uh, environment. Yeah, that's really exciting. I know a lot of people worry about automation t- coming for everyone's jobs, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of technology jobs that come out of the acceleration of autonomous vehicles. So earlier you mentioned uh, that, that cities play a role as well, in addition to uh, the other two factors, being the old automotive industries and mobility. What role do the cities have in, in next generation mobility? So cities, in, in my mind, and, and this is what I also write in, the, in this new book, uh, have, to, have to take a leadership role in ushering new mobility. Now, not every city will do that. But I think they have a great opportunity, and they have a great opportunity because they they are the providers of the physical infrastructure, the the roads, the sidewalks, the curb, uh, the the parking locations. But they can also be the providers of of the appropriate digital infrastructure. I mean, so again, imagine all of these autonomous vehicles or automated vehicles will need much more than the physical signage that uh, we're used to uh, today. They will, uh, we will need the equivalent of electronic signage. We need, as I said before, the, the right data flows for everybody to be informed of, of, what is, of what's going on. So the cities can play a big role there as well. Then they, they do have public transportation networks, which are, again, the, they can play a very important role in this holistic view of uh, mobility. In fact, one of the, the points that I'm making early on in the book is that t- today, urban mobility, whether it is for passenger transportation or goods delivery, is really a, a set of three silos. You have private uh, vehicles, whether it is for uh, owned by fleets or, or uh, uh, by individuals. 
you have mobility services that uh, are another silo, and then you have public transportation that is a third silo. And and today in most cities, these uh, these three entities do not collaborate. Uh, so uh, going forward, cities have a, a, can play a very important role in in bringing together. Um, at the very least, mobility services and public transportation networks, and I think eventually, most likely by you know by the end of this decade, you have automakers joining in those type, those kind of new networks that that will be created. So cities can play a very a very big role in that. And again, depending on the on the role they choose to play, um, they can be simple smart cities providing infrastructure, in other words, and and nothing more. Uh, they can be transportation coordinators where they're starting now to, to better monetize their, their infrastructure and, and start combining uh, their uh, public transportation networks with uh, mo- at least mobility services networks. Uh, or it can be, we take it the other extreme, they can actually be transportation or mobility orchestrators where they, they can take, they can play almost like the the equivalent of air traffic controller uh, of for the for ground transport for ground mobility, right? And, and in, in this point, you you have um, good delineation of spaces where, uh, uh, for example, vehicles are not allowed to other places where uh, you have multimodal mobility, and, and you're better able to orchestrate how the various modalities and the various providers of these modalities can work together in order to provide, go back to this, how we started this conversation, this uh, affordable, safe, and convenient uh, transportation that is that is uh, uh, environmentally friendly and, uh, uh, and also uh, equitable. Do you see any, uh, any cities that are kind of leading the charge in this regard? Well, we're starting to see examples of uh, of cities that are uh, experimenting in in this uh, in these areas, and and some of them are farther along than others. So, um, if I if I look at here in the in the U.S., I'll say you know experimentation is both Phoenix is is doing is experimenting both with Waymo and with Neuro on the on the goods delivery. Uh, Waymo, obviously, in passenger transportation, uh, Neuro with goods delivery. Uh, if I look at uh, Europe, um, I'll say Paris, Berlin, and uh, maybe Madrid a little bit um, are are doing uh, quite are having quite a few programs. You know, Berlin, for example, there is a uh, there is a very active program to integrate their uh, all their public transportation modalities with. Uh, micro transit, uh, as well as some other uh, uh, micro mobility uh, services. Paris, you uh, you have a, a very active mayor there that is uh, both uh, re- reconfiguring the urban space to accommodate to, to, to provide more access to micro mobility, and again combine with uh, with public transportation and restrictions on where privately owned vehicles can go. Uh, not always the uh, She's not always the favorite of, of drivers because that creates certain uh, uh, certain issues on where they can drive and where they cannot. 
And then in Asia, we're seeing, obviously, I think the, the poster child uh, for all this is uh, Singapore, that, that has a, an extremely attractive vision and, and is putting it into action uh, little by little. We see uh, Shanghai in China as, as having a, uh, actually a quite, uh, uh, quite good vision on and, and the, the corresponding implementation. Um, and uh, so, so again, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sure there are other cities that I, uh, that I may not be doing justice to right now, but uh, you asked for just a few examples and I wanted to, uh, uh, to, to give examples from every, from every region. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great answer. I was hoping you were going to say my city, San Diego. I know we've done uh, some experiments down there too, but uh, we can't all be well, highlights. Well, yeah, again, what is interesting to me is, um, when I give talks about the book, uh, and the book is, is less than a year old, but there are already a number of things that uh, have changed, some of them due to the pandemic, but also a lot of them because of how fast mobility is, is changing itself, right, with, with new modalities, with new thinking. So uh, there are probably about 100, I mean, based on the most recent statistics that I have, there are probably about 160 to 200 cities somewhere in that ballpark that are uh, actually uh, experimenting in, in, in significant ways about how to deal with, uh, with new mobility. Well, let's stop there. I'm going to encourage the listeners to buy the book if they want to learn more. Okay, so you also mentioned um, you know, data being the connective tissue or the glue for this new, new mobility. How does data drive value creation? So, first of all, I think what is important for for your audience to understand is that when we talk about data, you know, mobility-related data, uh, we're talking about several different types of data. There is the data, for example, that is generated by the infrastructure. There is the data that's generated by the uh, vehicle as it is uh, looking to move in, in an environment. There's the data that's generated within the cabin of the vehicle and, and many other forms of, of data. So each of these types of, of data, when they can be combined appropriately and depending on the combination, they can provide uh, different forms of uh, value. So, uh, for example, a city can use this type of data to, to decide how to price mobility uh, within its uh, uh, boundaries. So I think uh, in the even today, if you look at Singapore, for example, uh, different part, different streets, different roads can be priced differently depending on the time of day, uh, and that's a, a way of of controlling the flow of of traffic as well as obviously for the city to generate revenues from from that uh, from those assets that they have. Um, and there are already even companies uh, that are uh, helping startups that are starting to, to help cities on how to best monetize their, their infrastructure using uh, this type of data. We're working with uh, companies that are using this type of data in order to monetize the cabin. Okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm providing a, a service uh, or I'm, I'm providing convenience to the occupants of the cabin, and in the meantime, I'm, I'm monetizing them. There are companies that uh, that are used that can use this kind of data 
I mean, again, we're working with a few automakers that, that want to use this kind of data to streamline their manufacturing, uh, to reduce their warranty costs, to, uh, to, to determine what kind of services to offer to, to, to the owners of the, of the vehicle. So again, the, the point being is that we need to understand that this is, we're not talking about one type of data, we're talking about multiple types of data. This, this, and, and these types can be blended in different ways. And depending on the way that they're blended and the way that they can be exploited through AI, they provide a different value. One last example I will mention is uh, if you look at the so-called super apps, you know, th- these are the uh, uh, applications that are running on mobile phones that are typically offered by a few of the mobility services companies, such as started by Grab in, in Singapore that they where you can use your application now not only in order to order a, a ride hailing service but to order a lot more other services that many of which are transportation related so uh, bring me my food or bring me even the service person who is going to provide me with some service in my home um, so again uh, all of this is uh, generates data and and takes advantage of data in order to be able to uh, to offer them. Next, let's talk about the business models. What are the prevalent ways to monetize next generation mobility? To date, the most of us have experienced, at least, uh, in uh, has been the transactional model. Uh, so I, I offer, I, I ask for a ride, or I take a ride using my, you know, a shared scooter or a shared bike or whatever. And, and I pay uh, a fee based on, on distance, based transaction-based uh, model. But we're starting to, to see now the emergence of uh, subscription models, the emergence of advertising-based models. Uh, I talk a little bit about, about that in the book. And uh, also more recently of loyalty-based models, where, in other words, your loyalty towards a uh, either a, a network or a, a specific company uh, is rewarded and can be redeemed, uh, very much like we have seen in the case of airlines, uh, where you know you accumulate miles and um, uh, you, you can then redeem the miles for either uh, flights or, or other services that the airline provides. I think we'll see more and more of that in uh, in uh, in the ground transportation uh, uh, industry, and how about risks? Uh, talk about risks that might impact the transformation of transportation. So the let's start with the vehicle. Um, we are moving from a mechanical vehicle, who where uh, a lot of the intelligence was provided by discrete physical components and a lot of the function was provided by such components to a vehicle that is software defined. So we're working right now with a number of uh, automakers, helping them create that software defined vehicle and helping them understand what is the AI, in, in our case, what is the AI that needs to be part of that vehicle. But but the future vehicle, uh, even if it's not fully autonomous, it's definitely going to be software defined. So once we start talking about a software-defined vehicle, now we have to start facing all of the, and of course we have software-defined infrastructure and to support that vehicle, 
we have to, to face all the risks that are associated with software from, from, from bugs to network problems to cybersecurity to, to again, uh, everything that is to, to data issues that, you know, that may lead to faulty models. So, so this is one large class of, of risks. Uh, the second class of risks uh, is, is, is this vehicle becomes, and the service that is provided around this vehicle uh, become increasingly intelligent. Uh, we have all the issues associated with AI and primarily uh, issues of bias, issues of ethics. And I think that, again, in the same way that we broadly start to face the, to start addressing rather the, the uh, bias and ethics relating to broader AI, I think we will have to, to deal with uh, this specific topic in the context of mobility. Um, so again, because we want to be able to provide this uh, safe, affordable, convenient mobility to everybody. Um, so I, I think that uh, AI and, uh, and AI ethics will, will create another class of risks. And then the, the final, uh, in my mind, final large class of risks, uh, and you mentioned a little bit of that uh, a few minutes ago, relates to employment. So uh, we, we will, as, as the automation increases, uh, whether it is the manufacturing automation, whether it is the... Um, the, the driving automation, uh, I think we will see certain positions becoming less attractive while other positions uh, are, are being created. I think also uh, I would be remiss not to mention that what the pandemic has shown us is that uh, telework is uh, a, a lot more possible than we thought than we ever thought of in the past. So in other words, more people can work from home compared to what we thought of. Uh, and, and I think that will also that, that shift uh, depending on how it is embraced by uh, organizations, whether it is government or uh, corporates, uh, that shift will also have an impact on on mobility and, and maybe as a result unemployment. So um, to, to me, these are three very large classes of, of risks that we have to uh, understand and deal with as we, uh, as we uh, face new mobility. Yeah, those are certainly some big ones. Let's move on to sort of the closing, the closing period. Are there some areas of new mobility where startups can have an upper hand uh, against the you know, existing incumbents? We have been counting, so I should say that from, from our firm's perspective, we have been counting on the importance of software and on the importance of software both in uh, developing uh, a vehicle. So, for example, we have uh, invested in uh, Metamoto, which was uh, a company that uh, provides a simulation for autonomous, a software simulator for autonomous vehicles. Uh, we, we had invested, it was acquired by Fortelix. We, we, we invested in a company called Understand.ai that uses AI in order to automatically uh, label uh, the data that's being used 
by to, to create the AI models that autonomous vehicles uh, utilize. So we, we we see great opportunities in in the uh, vehicle creation phase. We're investors in Divergent Three D, for example, which is which is design, uh, developing a new manufacturing system that uses additive manufacturing technologies in for, for new mobility vehicles. We then see opportunities in these new value chains because they're, they're going to be, as I said, there's going to be a, a wealth of services that uh, are going to be made possible, whether it is services to better orchestrate uh, a fleet uh, or to in order to deliver uh, people and goods, uh, whether it is to do predictive diagnosis. Uh, so uh, we recently invested, for example, in a German company called Awake Mobility uh, that is uh, providing pr- predictive diagnosis uh, for uh, fleets. Uh, and uh, we've also recently invested in a company called Miles, which is providing a, a, a loyalty program for ground mobility and uses extensively uses AI in order to understand how to uh, to, to help consumers um, uh, monetize their, their mobility uh, patterns. So again, startups think we're going to play a, a big role uh, in, in, this, uh, in this area. We also in providing maybe certain parts of the stack that enables autonomous, uh, autonomous mobility. We have, we have not invested in, in vehicles or in areas where require, that are capital intensive because we think that, that those are better suited for larger corporations than for startups. It sounds like a lot of opportunities. Uh, okay, let's end on this question, uh, and it's a fun one. What's the most important question about new mobility that I didn't ask in this interview? I think it is important to understand um, what is the... What are the timelines that we're talking about? You know, a couple of years ago, if you were to believe the the press and everybody, everything that had been talked about, that was being talked about, you would think that by now we would be, we will all be driving in autonomous in an autonomous vehicle. And I think that people do not appreciate. Uh, both how uh, hard and important this important technology the, the important technologies are to develop and deploy, but also how uh, uh, how much time it takes in order to start implementing and rolling these new capabilities out in uh, its scale. I've said uh, both in the book and my public speaking, I say that. Uh, new mobility, new urban mobility is going to be implemented on a city-by-city basis. It's not going to be an entire country, you know, embracing at the same time. So I think that we need to be, we need to be patient uh, in, um, as, we, as we see all these developments uh, coming into our, into our lives. Uh, but uh, I, uh, again, the timelines are important here. All right. Thank you for that answer. Evangelos, before we go, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you and Synapse Partners? So we have a, we have a pretty good uh, website. So through our website, they can, so www.synapsepartners.co uh, is the best way to, uh, to reach us. And from there, they can, they can reach me. Uh, I'm 
pretty active in, in a variety of channels, uh, whether it is um, LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever. And, uh, but anyway, we're, we're all pretty good about responding to uh, everybody who wants to be in touch with us. All right. Well, we're going to end the show there. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Evangelist, thank you for joining the show today. I, we appreciate your time and uh, making this time to share with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.